Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. Going to be looking at a number of passages, so we'll start there, but we'll be going numerous places. Messiah's Reform Fellowship is coming up to its 20th anniversary in February, and I thought it was an appropriate time to remind ourselves of uh, why we are here and why it is important. And uh, since I have this one week in between uh, preaching, I thought it would be an apt time to do that. So let's ask God to bless the hearing of his word. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come to your word. We come to a portion of it that we often read, pass over quickly. It's history. It's past. We don't give it much mind. But we pray that you'd open your word to us today, that we might see fresh light from it and might know you better and your ways. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 9, I'm going to look at verses 15 and 16. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the millow and the wall of Jerusalem and Hachsor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. Three points to the sermon this morning. First of all, the principle. Secondly, the pattern. And thirdly, the practice. Why does Messiah's Reform Fellowship exist and why is it important. Having been here 20 years, it's uh, valuable to remind those of us that have been here a while and those of us that are newer um, why the answer to those questions. Why does Messiah's Reform Fellowship exist and why is it important that we exist, that we are here? Some of you know, many of you do not, that we were started as a direct response to the tragic uh, terrorist attack of September 11, 2001. Joining with West Sayville Reformed Bible Church out on Long Island, uh, the thinking of Christians was that the best thing Christians could do to respond to that tragedy was to plant a church in the shadow of the Twin Towers and pray that God would turn that tragedy into a triumph for the gospel. So 20 years ago, we began down on Water Street, 850 yards from Ground Zero. We have wandered somewhat, and this is the fifth location we have been at. Uh, Some of you are aware of that, but that is how we started. The reason behind that was not only as a response to September 11th, 2001, but was because of this principle. That is, the strategic importance and significance of cities in the proclamation and advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The significance and the importance, the strategic significance and importance of cities in the proclamation and advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That principle, in uh, 1900, for example, Uh, some 122 years ago, only 15% of the world's population lived in cities. By 1990, 
It was 50% of the world's population. By 1985, it was 2.1 billion people lived in cities, the cities of the world. Just recently, that number doubled to almost 5 billion people living in the cities of the world. We just sang Psalm 67. Let all the people, let all the nations praise you. If you want to reach the peoples and the nations of the world, the church must go to cities. And the church, Messiah's Reform Fellowship, came to New York City acknowledging the strategic importance and significance of cities. Think of it, and it's not hard to acknowledge that fact. New York City is not only uh, what we might call the capital of America, albeit not the political capital, but it is the center of so many industries which are vital to our nation's economy. Think, for example, of media. New York City, apart from Hollywood, but in terms of news, uh, publications, and uh, elsewhere, uh, New York City is the center for media uh, in this country and often in the world, taking its cue from how America goes. New York City is the center for publishing, for example. New York City is the center of fashion. New York City is the center of one industry after another could go on and on and on. That means that there is strategic significance, importance to having the gospel of Jesus Christ preached here, to having a Christian world and life view preached here, to seeing the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, every industry, if you will, preached here. And it was with that hope in response to September 11th, uh, 2001, that Messiah's Reform Fellowship was established. It is not uh, without significance that New York City is often referred to as the crossroads of the world, and that ha- cities have also always been strategic importance and significance. And that's what brings us to our text today, which is the pattern of mission is always been to cities. Now, in your bulletin today, if you got it, there's a little map, all right? Now, if you look at that map, you'll see a couple of cities circled and a couple of other terms circled. In our text, we read of Chatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And if you look at the map, you'll see Chatzor, is up here on, towards the top, all right? You'll see Megiddo is towards the coast, about halfway down the page. And you'll see Gezer a little bit further south towards the bottom of the page. Now what you'll also notice next to those cities that are circled are a term called the Via Maris. That's Latin for the way of the sea the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And that was a commercial trade route. If you look at the top of the page, you'll see that that Via Maris goes to Mesopotamia by way of Damascus. And if you go to the south, you'll see that the Via Maris, the way of the sea, goes from uh, to Egypt and Mesopotamia. So allow me to further explain this, all right? The ancient political positioning of the nation of Israel, all right, which you're looking at on that map, 
Israel is often thought by far too many Christians to be this remote, it's about the size of New Jersey, 100 miles wide, or 70 miles wide, 100 miles uh, north to south. That's about the size of the nation of Israel. Most Christians tend to think of Israel as a remote uh, nation at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, which apart from biblical importance as uh, events in which the Bible took place, is really of not much significance. Nothing could be further from the truth. All right? In uh, the northern coastal area on the modern-day Arabian Peninsula, today Jordan, Syria, Iraq, and Iran would be located east of Israel, Egypt on the west, as it has been for thousands of years. Now, in the Bible, all right, Israel was strategically located between two world powers of the ancient world. Egypt, to the south, had been the western power that had the newest technology and metals. They were feeding the world from their vast natural resources. To the east, which you see at the top of the page, uh, was the Orient, alternately known as Babylon, Assyria, and Persia. From there came cloth and spices. So think of it, all right? Each empire had what the other empire lacked, all right? Um, The east had cloth and spices, but needed food and technology of the west. This set up an interesting situation for the nation of Israel, which was located between them. You following me? All right? Okay. The main trade route between these two world centers went straight through Canaan, Israel, and Palestine. It was called the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea. And this yielded enormous strategic importance to Israel. For whoever controlled Israel could control world trade. And whoever controlled world trade could then rule the world. And God had providentially arranged for Israel to be located at the crossroads of the world, and that would be similar to being located on Interstate 80 in the United States. Everybody who was anybody would have to pass through Israel in their travels. A little bit more important than most of us have thought about its geography. The three most important cities in Israel in the Bible were Chatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. This is the only place where all three cities are mentioned in one verse in the Bible, right here in 1 Kings 9. They were all located, if you look at the map, at key points on the Via Maris, north, central, and south. All right? If you controlled these three cities, you could bring the entire world to a halt because you then controlled the flow of world trade. Solomon, as we read in verse 17, was given Gezer as a gift when he married the daughter of the king of Egypt, and his era was one of the few times that Israel controlled all three cities. And this possession by Solomon, all these three cities, is responsible for his being so wealthy because he had to pay tolls to go through these cities, and he collected those tolls and amassed his great wealth. The most important of these three cities was Megiddo. Look at it on the map, all right? It's located by a pass that is seven miles long and 100 feet wide at its narrowest. There were more battles fought at Megiddo than any other place in world history. Still true today, all right? They were literally battles for control of the world. Megiddo is located on a hill, which as Pastor Dan could tell you in Hebrew is Har. So the name is Har Megiddo, from which we get our term Armageddon. Things beginning to come into focus here? All right. 
which in the New Testament, Armageddon, is spoken of as the battle which will take place for control of the world. Just think then of where it was that God had Jesus, his only begotten son, to be born. Not at a remote, nondescript nation tucked away at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. God had his only begotten son, Jesus, born on the Interstate 80 of his day, smack dab in the middle of controlling the world. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Quickly, we're going to look at a couple of passages. You can just listen if you want. All right, Matthew chapter 4. I want to show you this in the Bible so you don't think this is just some preacher's fancy, you know, fantasy or something. Matthew chapter 4, verse 14. Remember, Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews, and his particular emphasis in his gospel account is on how Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures, the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, all right? And we see one here. Matthew 12, uh, verse uh, 4, four uh, sorry, Matthew 4, verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the Via Maris, the way of the sea. Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region in shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And what's Jesus' message? The kingdom of heaven is here. Right on Interstate 80. <clears throat> Jesus was sent into the world, not in some remote corner. He was sent into the world on Main Street. The lesson for us uh, today by implication is obvious. The church is not to be isolated, not to be tucked away, not to be hiding. We're to be in the world in order to win the world. And more than any other time in human history, to be in cities like New York City, which, like the Via Maris, is the crossroads of the world. Look at Jonah, chapter 1. Turn back to the prophet Jonah, chapter 1. Minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, right? Got it? Heaven just ain't over Jordan. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Now I got to find it. Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. If you don't know the story of Jonah, Jonah is a prophet called on, to the Lord, called on by the Lord to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was kind of like New York City, kind of like Corinth, big, wicked city. Verse 2, the word, of, uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil, or Footnote reference, right? Their wickedness has come up before me, all right? This book is really not about Jonah. It's about God, all right? It's about God's mercy towards a wicked city that motivates the entire mission of Jonah, all right? 
God's, it's, Jonah is on God's mission. Yes, he rebels and eventually goes, right, and preaches and they repent. He wants Nineveh saved. And he, call, he calls God's people to proclaim his message of repentance and salvation to even wicked cities. But the attitude of Jonah, if you're familiar with it, Jonah says, Nineveh? Yeah, Nineveh's over there? I'm going over here. I'm out of here. Forget about it. You ain't getting me to go to Nineveh. <clears throat> Nineveh was not only a city of wicked immorality, it was a city, city of untold violence. The Ninevites, when they would go to battle, they would flay people's backs and their victims. You know what flaying is? It's slicing the back and then tearing the skin off bit by bit. They were known for their violence, for their viciousness. And God sends Jonah to Nineveh. And the attitude of Jonah, I'm out of here, is the attitude of most Christians today. At lunch last Sunday, I was in Central California at our sister congregation, Zion United Reformed Church. By the way, they send you their greetings and their love. All right, We were sitting at lunch, a number of us, and we were talking about things and somehow got on the subject of cities. And one of the guys said, oh yeah, cities in the Bible. You don't want to go to cities, you know. Cities are terrible places. It's where all immorality is. It's where all the liberals live. Cities are just terrible. That's ex Yeah, you laugh, right? But listen... That's the attitude of Jonah. That's the attitude of Jonah. That's not the teaching of the Bible. All right? And I want you to look at this with me, at the pattern. All right? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Or you can just listen if you don't want to turn to all these passages. Jeremiah chapter 29. You know that Israel goes into exile, right? Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. You'll notice the superscription of verse 1, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. So you're the exiles, right? They're in exile. They're being punished for their rebellion, for their sin, right? Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Pray for Babylon. Pray for the city that are our enemies, and where we're in exile? Look at the New Testament, Acts chapter 9. A couple of passages here, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 2. Saul, this is the chapter Saul becomes Paul, right? Um, Saul, uh, verse 2, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that it found, if he found any belonging to the way, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Apparently, the success of evangelism in Damascus was the cause for Paul to go there. People were believing the gospel. And Paul said, I'm going to get them. I'm going to persecute them. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to have them thrown in prison. Why was Paul going to Damascus? Because evangelism had been successful. In, and it is a prominent city to this day. Look at Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. <coughs> Excuse me. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. 
Now those who were scouted because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, Cyprus and Antioch, speaking to word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cy- Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching uh, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus looking for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and told a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. This is the mother church of the Gentile Christian movement. You'll remember in Acts, it was to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. This was the mother church of the Gentile mission movement. Paul's missionary journeys, if you trace them, all right, go from the most sacred city at the time, Jerusalem, to the most secular city, Rome, with about 17 cities in between them. Paul's missionary journeys were to cities because he knew that cities is where population centers were. He knew that cities were strategically important. He knew that cities were strategically significant, and his missionary travels were from one city to another. Within a period of 10 years and three journeys, Paul founded churches in the four Roman provinces of Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Look at Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, verse 9. Paul and Corinth. Um, 20 years ago, come February, this was my installation sermon. This was the text I preached for my installation out at West Sayville Reformed Bible Church. They were our mother church, all right? So Acts 18, verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in the vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God's concern, like God's concern for Nineveh, was for Corinth. If any city was like New York City, it was Corinth in spades. To Corinthianize was a euphemism for sexual immorality. I mean, just think of the church at Corinth, right? If ever there was a whacked-out church, a bunch of knuckleheads and morons, I mean, it was Corinth, right? And yet here's God saying to Paul, no, you go to Corinth. You go to Corinth. and pre- I have many people in that city. Look at Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, verse 31. If you're a good Bible student, you know that where Paul is, Paul's in Rome, right? Going, what's the progress in the book of Acts? Jerusalem to Rome, 17 cities in between, right? Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and, uh, and without hindrance. It was only a few centuries later that Rome became a Christian, the center of the Christian empire. Because preaching changed an empire. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. This is what I said to the gentleman last week at lunch when he started saying, oh, you don't want to go to cities. Cities are where all the liberals are and all the wackos and stuff. I don't know what you're doing in New York. Revelation chapter 21. 
Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The central promise of the covenant, I will be your God, you will be my people. Right? Notice, the end of the Bible is not everybody goes up to heaven in some kind of rapture. It's heaven comes down to earth. And that is the theme of the entire Bible, all right? The Bible begins with God dwelling on the earth with Adam and Eve in perfect harmony. Sin enters into the world, breaks that relationship, breaks the relationship between Adam and Eve, breaks the relationship between Adam and Eve and the creation, and God, the rest of the Bible is God restoring that relationship, dealing with sin, dealing with uh, problems in human relationships, dealing with renewing the earth, right? And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. God's plan will not be thwarted. There will be restoration. There will be harmony. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that in the book of Ephesians, where God has torn down the, cent- uh, the wall uh, of, of uh, division between Jew and Gentile. There ought not to be racism in the church of Jesus Christ. And in this church, there are 28 nationalities who are united by a common love for Jesus Christ. That's the grace of God. That's the, mir- that's the miracle power of the gospel in you, in this congregation in New York City. But note significantly for the purpose for which I mention it, what's the progress in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? It's from a garden to a city. Speaks volumes in my mind. I hope you can see from the pattern and the short survey that we've looked at, cities in the Bible are not universally condemned as places where Christians have no place belonging. Rather, they're strategically important and significant in God's purposes and plans. Even Augustine, if you've read him, and you should, in his work, The City of God, presents the antithesis as an antithesis between two cities. Cities. Well, what about the practice? I looked on some census data in preparation for this sermon. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know. New York City is multicultural. About 36 of the city's population is foreign-born. The 11 nations constituting the largest sources of modern immigration to New York City are Dominican Republic, China, Jamaica, Guyana, Mexico, Ecuador, Brazil, Haiti, Trinidad, Tobago, Colombia, Colombia, Russia, and El Salvador. Did I get that right? Where's... I got it right. Okay, very good. New York City is home to the largest Jewish community outside Israel, the largest African-American community of any city in the country, the largest Chinese population outside of Asia. There are more Puerto Ricans in New York City than there are in Puerto Rico. It's the largest Italian population in North America and the third largest Italian population outside of Italy. Your city, this city. So what's the point? What's the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations. God has brought them right here. 
you can fulfill the Great Commission without ever leaving New York City. That's not to say people shouldn't go to the foreign mission field. Of course, that's important. We should send people all over to preach the gospel everywhere, every nation. But you can fulfill the Great Commission without ever leaving New York City. That's astounding. And the miraculous power of the gospel is evidenced in the composition of this congregation. 28 different nationalities comprise this congregation. That's amazing. That's amazing. Another thing... New York City has always been a city of immigrants ever since the Dutch founded it and the English took it over, all right? It's always been an an entryway for immigrant populations that have moved here seeking the American dream. Nobody's breaking down the walls to get into Nigeria. Nobody's breaking down the walls to get into Thailand. They're breaking down the walls to get into America, though, right? Because America is a land of opportunity. America is a great nation. America, for a variety of reasons, not going to get into that, right? The point is simply that that is an an enormous opportunity for you and for me and the preaching of the gospel, all right? Americans, by and large, have had the gospel. They've heard the gospel, all right, over the course of the years of our founding and the couple of hundred years since. They don't want it anymore. They don't want it. Immigrants, newcomers to our country, though, are open to hearing the gospel, and they're on our home turf. They're open because they have not heard the gospel. They have, maybe they've heard some reference to Jesus Christ, but most of the uh, religions of the world, Jesus Christ is just another religious figure. There's an enormous open door there for preaching the gospel. And thirdly, there's a whole mission strategy in the Old Testament based on immigrants. Do you know that? I mentioned to you in the previous sermon, if you weren't here, there are four categories for whom God uh, has special concern in the Bible, all right? And he wove his concern into the fabric of his law. There's the orphan and the widow, those who don't have a father, those who don't have a husband, all right? God had particular concern for them because they didn't have a provider and a protector. There were the poor, right? Those who could work, if, if only, uh, those who would work if only they could. They needed a hand up, not a hand out, and God had particular concern for them. The fourth category is very interesting, the alien, the stranger. If you're a very good student of the Bible, you'll know that over and over again, God says, take care of the sojourner in your midst. Take care of the alien within your midst. Why? Because you were an angel, you were an alien, you were a stranger, you didn't know me, and when you were a stranger to grace, when you were a stranger to me, I rescued you, I redeemed you, and as I have redeemed you, so you ought to have concern for the stranger, the alien, and the immigrant in your midst. That is a mission strategy, custom designed for this congregation and for New York City. We live in an immigrant city. We ought to be concerned for immigrants. Jerry Wiss, who was here this morning, was a missionary to the Polish people of Greenpoint, Brooklyn, when Greenpoint, Brooklyn, a hundred years ago, was still largely Polish. We have an opportunity. The mission strategy was actually written by Albert Heisen, H-U-I-S-J-E-N, 
uh, member, minister in the Christian Reformed Church 100 years ago, <clears throat> wrote a book on this mission strategy, and the church of his day utilized that in reaching Jewish people who were neighbors to the Dutch immigrants in Patterson, New Jersey, in Chicago, Illinois, and in New York City. Amazing. A whole mission strategy right there in the Bible based on the fact that you live amongst immigrants. Another application. Messiah's Reformed Fellowship is the only confessionally reformed church in New York City. We're the only confessionally reformed church in New York City for 25 million people in the metropolitan area, for 8 to 10 million people in the five boroughs of New York City that have truth that's been tried, tested, proven, Heidelberg Catechism, Belgian Confession, Canons of Dort, Reformed Confessions, world and life view, the lordship of Jesus Christ over area of, every area of life. Why is it important to be confessionally reformed? So that you can cross your T's and dot your I's? That's never the purpose in the Bible. The connection in the Bible is between doctrine and life. How you believe will determine you, how you behave, right? And we believe that right teaching, not just right doctrine, but teaching about the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, is going to impact the entirety of life. Do you realize how many people we have in this congregation that work in enterprises that are significant? Yeah, okay, we're overwhelmed by liberals today. But the results are up to God. It's always been a minority. And a minority in the church turned the world upside down. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this congregation, possessed of the truth, once for all delivered to the saints, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord over every area of life, that when you go into your occupations tomorrow through Saturday, you're seeking to do that as pastor prayed unto the Lord with all your might, that you are offering your service as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship, Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do you think that's unimportant? Do you think that's insignificant? I have, imp I have tried to impress upon you during my tenure in this congregation that you ought never to think of whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's washing dishes, changing diapers, blue-collar job, white-collar job, as anything insignificant because God uses it all. And he's directing the affairs of men and nations to his appointed purposes. And everything that you do, he uses to accomplish that purpose. Be assured of that. Be confident of that. Go out tomorrow with that belief. That's why it's important to have a confessionally reformed church in New York City. Because what you believe determines how you behave. 50% of the population of the United States lives in our geographic region, our classes, if you've heard us use that term, uh, a church term, all right? That is, our classes goes from Vermont to Florida. 50% of the population of the United States lives in this region. Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., cultural and commercial capitals of the world are right here. Now you might be asking, all right, preacher, this all sounds good, but 
Sounds like you're a statistician and not a preacher of the gospel. Well, turn back to Jonah, if you will. Jonah chapter 4. It's the text that's in your bulletin for today. Jonah chapter 4. By the way, if you think the odds are overwhelming, Jonah went to Nineveh, and just think, that it was a city three days' journey. That is, to walk across Nineveh took three days. That's not Podunk, Iowa, right? That's a big city, right? Nineveh preached, and they repented. They repented. See, your confidence doesn't have to be in numbers. Your confidence doesn't have to be in skill. Your confidence doesn't have to be in rhetorical ability. Your confidence doesn't need to be in theological acuity. Your confidence has to be in the gospel, that it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, the power of God to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Jonah 4, verse 11, God speaking, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. The heart of God is expressed for the wicked city of Nineveh. His heart of mercy, his heart of compassion, for God so loved New York City that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, this is your God and Father. This is his heart. And his heart is for lost people. His heart is for wicked people. And if you're not a Christian, if you're one of those lost people, if you're one of those wicked people, God desires that you do not perish but that you turn from your sin, that you trust in his son Jesus Christ, whom he sent to be a savior for sinners. He's a savior for me. He's a savior for many in this congregation, and he will save you also. Jesus himself said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest. You will find rest for your souls. You will find peace. You will find pardon. You will find reconciliation. You will find compassion. You will find pity. You will find help. Turn to Jesus Christ. Listen, remember I said the whole of the Bible is a story about reuniting heaven and earth. Genesis, the fall into sin, God's mission, revelation, heaven comes down to earth. You say, oh, that sounds like a fantasy story. Listen to me. Heaven already came down to earth in Jesus. Jesus is heaven, heaven's connection to earth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thankful that you are merciful and gracious and compassionate. 
and that you call hell-deserving sinners. Not to go to hell, but to go to Jesus, that they may be saved from the horrors of hell by his blood and righteousness. Father, use us, work in us what is pleasing to you, and help us to be used by you to reach many in this city with the saving message of Jesus Christ, we pray. In his name and for his sake, amen.